Reconciliation sticks out and is recognized because it is so rare. Scarcely seen, when it shows up, it pops out. It's like, wow, that's beautiful. Why is it that reconciliation is so rare? Well, it's hard work and it's costly. Ask God who was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. There are abundant reasons why we find reconciliation difficult. Pride stands near the front of the line. We'd rather be proved right on our terms than we would be right with others. There's unbelief, there's bitterness, there's a spirit of revenge, there's a spirit of vengeance, there's wrath and malice. And those forces can seem greater than grace and forgiveness and acting like God. And isn't it true that we most act like God when we forgive? Before us this morning is an epic story of forgiveness and reconciliation. The star of the story is astonishing. Esau. Esau is the hero? This is Esau's finest hour. Now you'll remember that in the first family, Cain killed Abel. That may have been in the mind of Rachel when she approached Isaac and says, look, Esau is homicidal. After this bowl of red stew changed the inheritance, and he's going to kill his brother. We've got to get his brother out of here. So out of here he went, and Jacob left for 20 years, thinking he was going to be scot-free away from that tyranny of his brother's rage. Well, he goes off, finds a wife is tricked, marries the sister, then marries Rachel after Leah. His wages are changed 10 times. He's there for 20 years. It's a hot mess. But God came to him and said, now it's time to leave. You need to go back home. And oh, it must have been liberating that thought in his heart. We're going to leave and I'm going to get away from Laban. But that thought was then soon adjusted with the thought of, oh no, I now have to face Esau on my way home. But we see in Esau's response, amazing grace. It's incredible. And so the question before us this morning is, do we live out the amazing nature of grace that saved us wretches. Because Esau, Esau, is the model of grace and forgiveness in this passage. So come with me to Genesis chapter 32 and 33 this morning. We'll look at yet another lie that besets us and seeks to seduce us. The lie is, the best approach is to keep sweeping it all under the carpet. Now, I want to go three different directions this morning. First, I want to look at this epic story of history, Genesis 32, 
Genesis 33. Secondly, I want us to analyze this lie and face it. See it straight on. Do you realize how many have a method of operation in life that is, I'll just not face it and it'll go away. And we'll look at that. That's not a good strategy. And finally, this story is to move us and shape our living. And there are three treasures that we need to consider before we come to the Lord's table here this morning. Now let's look at this history. Number one, the history of Esau's finest hour. This narrative, this story is a bit of an anomaly. You don't expect this. This is the hairy, wild, crazy man, Esau, who emerges as the gracious man who is ready to dismiss the offense as tragic as it was against him and the the offense's implications for the rest of his life. And he meets with his brother, and they're reunited. Now let's lay hold of three pieces of history from this story. Piece number one, ominous dread surrounds Jacob's heart as he treks home. Look at 32, 3 through 13. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob. I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and displeased and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country, And to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed the Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, that he may come and attack me the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for the multitude. So he stayed there that night and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. Please notice how fear paralyzed Jacob's heart. And this is what fear always does. It's a part of its job description. Fear is besetting to many. And it disengages us from a trust in the Lord. And immediately, we are paralyzed. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 11. He decides to send a group 
respectfully address Esau, our Lord Esau, your servant Jacob has sent this to you. And there's no response. He just heads out toward Jacob and his party with 400 men. So the messengers come back and say, hey, look, and no doubt Jacob is interested. How'd the meeting go? Well, we told him. Great. How did he receive it? He didn't say anything. They mounted their horses, and there's 400 of them headed our way, and he said nothing. An ominous doom began to rush into his heart. He had very dark thoughts. Notice that our fear is ratcheted up when we haven't dealt with things we need to deal with. Ultimately, I've been with people in death, and um, they were captured by fear and dread. And a part of it was because they knew, and I knew they knew, they had left things undealt with before God, the one that they would soon stand before. And so when we don't deal with issues that we need to deal with, it heightens our sense of fear. Aren't you with me ready to lower all thresholds of fear and do what we need to do? When we face what we need to face, we can face life without fear. And with a conscience that's clear. Not because we are heroic, but because what God has done for us in Christ to resolve our sin and give us peace. Therefore, being made right with God, by faith we have peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jacob is full of fear. He now must face Esau. Esau's coming with 400 men. It had been 20 years of separation that sin had caused. Ominous dread surrounds Jacob's heart as he treks home. Secondly, notice this. Look at 32, 16 through 21. Scheming Jacob seeks reconciliation on his own terms. 32, 16. These he handed over to his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he's behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, verse 20, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Now here's Jacob. He's got a package of gifts for his brother. The word droves is important. It shows up four times in these verses. He has 
set this up in regiments. All right, wave number one of gifts. Hey, what's this? Oh, it's for you. It's for you, our Lord Esau, from your servant Jacob. Did you notice how he addresses himself? So he sends them in droves and in waves, trying to persuade him that he ought to be accepted. Here is Jacob with a classic example of trying to do reconciliation in his own terms. Here is Jacob who is seeking to redo the history that he messed up when he sinned against his brother. Note to self, life doesn't work that way. We don't become reconciled on our own terms and how we make it up. Oh, I know what I'll do. I'll do this, and I'll do that, and then I'll do this, and then I'll do that. Here is how reconciliation is enacted. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Somebody, and it's the offended party, has to die on behalf of the offender. And in that death, the offended is brought together with the offender. And it's where grace meets. It's where life comes. It's where forgiveness is celebrated. And it's where lives are changed. Do you know of such change? We don't make this reconciliation stuff up. We don't decide how to do it. Jacob in his pride was trying to scheme and get it all figured out. His goal, verse 20, is to appease his brother. Now, on your calendar, on your refrigerator at home, coming up this week on the 15th of September, you'll look, it'll say, maybe some, if you, you got the higher octane model, it'll say Yom Kippur. The lower octane model, you know, that you, know, you, you, you got free at the funeral home when you were walking out the door, you know, late last year, whatever. Uh, it'll say uh, Day of Atonement. Kippur, that's the word. That's the word here, a peace. That God... His wrath against us was satisfied. That's that big old long theological $6 word, propitiation. His wrath was satisfied. The death of Jesus was enough. What Jacob is trying to do is appease his brother, satisfy his brother. And he couldn't do it with all the gifts and it's amazing, in the heart of the forgiver, what changed the calculus was Esau's willingness to forgive. That was the dynamic that changed everything. And if you want to understand God's heart, look at Esau's heart here. That's his heart toward us, we who have offended him. Now, the third piece of this story that we need to understand, and this is the astounding part, Esau acts like God and un conditionally forgives sin. Look at chapter 33, the first 11 verses. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. By the way, you can cut the atmosphere in 33.1 with a knife. I mean, nobody knows how this is going to come out. Where is this going? Are we going to see a massacre? What's going to happen? So he divided his children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. He put the servants with their children in front, and then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. 
he himself went on before him, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God graciously has given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I found favor in your sight, then accept my presence as from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Then he urged him, and he took it. Hear word of the Lord. This passage is full of incredible encounters with God and his messengers. It starts out in chapter 32 with Jacob, and it is described here in ways that are fantastic. He runs into angelic presence on earth, as it were, escorting him back home in 32, 1 and 2. He wrestles with God who took on human form and was with him in chapter 32, verses 22 through 32, when his name is changed from Jacob to Israel. And he says in verse 30, I'm going to name this place Peniel. And Peniel means the face of God. And he says, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So he comes off of these fantastic encounters. God tells him to leave. He faces Laban. He faces a group of angels. He gets ready to go. His heart is gripped with fear, Jacob. And he wrestles with God himself. And as it starts to get dawn, he realizes what's going on. He says, I'm not going to let you go to you. Bless me. Isn't it interesting that the blessing took the form of a dislodged hip? He walked with a limp the rest of his days. I mean, do I want God to bless me like that? You know what it forced Jacob to do? Every step to realize that it wasn't his scheming that was going to save him, but it was his God who would save him. He was changed from Jacob, the schemer, to Israel, which means God fights. Now, here's the deal. If you'll let him, by his grace, he will fight for you. He will fight for you. Does that make your heart sing like it makes Teresa sing? And I'm not playing with her. I'm asking what's in your heart when you hear that. It is staggering for some of us to realize something as simple as this. God is for us. God is with us in Christ. So if you're contemplating the value of knowing Jesus Christ in life, if you're contemplating what it means to embrace him and trying to figure out, ought I embrace him or not? Ought I follow him with all that I have? Jacob says, I'll tell you, Esau, to encounter you, it's like encountering the face of God. I see the face of God in you, in your response to me. 
because God is the one who embraces me notwithstanding my sin and is willing to forgive and has resolved it in Jesus Christ. What a Savior. What glory there is in the gospel. And then you and I have the privilege of representing this Lord before others in such a way, and here's the astonishing thing, in our normal garden variety lives, God can be seen and encountered face to face. Wow. That takes a mundane Monday and makes it look different. Who shall we be around this week? What will they conclude about who we are as a result of being around us? Will they leave and say, I've experienced the face of God. This is Peniel. It's right here. Because in encountering you, I have encountered him. Who are we at Calvary? Who has God called us to be? What impression are we leaving with people? Now let's face the lie. The best approach is to keep sweeping it under the carpet. In husband-wife relationships, some adopt this as their MO. The best thing to do is just keep sweeping the conflict, sweeping the issues under the carpet, and it will be all right. And when so much gets under the carpet that people are tripping over the carpet and falling in the living room, everybody's going, what's wrong? I can't figure it out. Well, does it have anything to do with no issue is ever dealt with or identified or resolved? Notice, this issue was resolved in the grace of our Lord, issues can get resolved. In friendship circles, in work groups, on sports teams, in churches, the common strategy can be, let's just sweep it under the carpet. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Now, the origin of this metaphor, sweeping it under the carpet, actually comes from uh, about 100, 120 years ago. It started to drop into vernacular speech as a knock on people who were cleaning at home. And it was a way to be super critical. Oh, look, they, they don't clean anything. They just sweep it under the carpet because they would uh, pull the carpet up and just sweep the uh, dirt under the carpet, put the carpet back down. It would, it would bear the semblance that this, we addressed it. You, you, you didn't address it. You swept it under the carpet. Now, let's note two matters. Number one, offense is as common as avoiding the offense, and both are tragic. I love Jesus' realism, Luke 17, 1. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks will come in marriage, in friendship, in ABF classes, in life groups, in churches, in work groups, in neighborhoods. We're sinful. We're prone to sin, and we bump up against each other. It's inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But when they come... They need to be addressed, and they need to be resolved. And the glory of the gospel and gospel people, they know how to resolve them because we know what it is to be forgiven. We know what it is to be the guilty party who's been let off the hook by a gracious God who took our hell so that we could have his life. And gospel people are in the best position to resolve these issues do we face offense at Calvary, or do we avoid facing offense at Calvary? Now, the second matter is, while not making every dispute a capital offense, 
followers of Jesus are willing to face and resolve issues with grace and humility. Jacob acts in very unlike ways. In fear and desperation, he got on his knees before God and he says this, I am unworthy of the least of your grace and your help. It was over then. Once Jacob got there, this was going to be resolved. Before he ever met Esau, it was resolved in his own spirit because he saw who he really was before God and what he really needed. Then he acts in humble ways. My Lord Esau is repeated in this passage. Your servant Jacob is repeated in this passage. He put himself under and in service to Esau. He bows down to the ground seven times. That's not Jacob-like. He's the deceiver-schemer. He's not the humble guy giving this thing wholly over to that person who had all the power, Esau. While not making every dispute a capital offense, followers of Jesus are willing to face and resolve issues with grace and humility. Now, not only is it inevitable that stumbling blocks shall come, This is not a Bible verse, but it is also true that some people are battle axes that see an offensive issue in everything that happens. Listen, I know you don't like me. You offended me. What? What is the offense? I saw how you closed your Bible. That was a microaggression against me. What? Some people find offense in everything. And by the way, all offenses are not capital offenses. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 8, love covers a multitude of sins. There's a glory in when we are offended of swallowing the offense and praying for the perpetrator and not making it a capital indictment that has to be addressed at the highest levels. If you are one putting onto other people your perceptions of yourself and creating offense, oh, dear one, root your identity in Jesus who has resolved our true guilt. We've offended God at the cross, and now we're free. So since we're free, we can be free with others, and we can be free and generous with forgiveness and grace and kindness Mercy keeps us from what we do deserve. Mercy. 33.10 For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. Jacob said, Esau, you've treated me just how God has treated me. And it has brought healing. Let's put away this lie. Peace comes when we do not believe the lie. The best approach is not to approach this. That's a lie. The godly response is a humble heart full of recognizing our own sin and involvement 
and levying forgiveness and pouring out grace. Now, this section is a rich treasure on several fronts. Let's notice three before we come to the table of our Lord. First, unresolved relational issues will catch up with us. That's the the story. This unresolved relationship caught up with Jacob and ran him down. That's a self-evident point. You can't outrun the long arm of destroyed relating. It follows us around. Jacob fled. He ran, but as the saying goes, he couldn't hide. Let's face what we need to face before our Lord. Genesis 33 is an epic peak of glory in the Old Testament. It's really cool. Do we have unresolved issues that we need to face before we meet the Lord? Let's do it. Let's do it together. If you need our Reach Biblical Counseling's help to quietly and confidentially walk forward and face these issues, let's do it. Secondly, our children learn how to live by watching our response to life. Did you notice 33-2 and notice who's in the crowd watching all of this go down? And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. A little boy watches his dad resolve something with his brother. Fancy that. You see, we'd have never got to what Kevin read this morning, Genesis 45. And Joseph, forgiving his brothers, if we didn't first pass through Genesis 33, where Joseph watched what was modeled in front of him as God's ideal. Joseph saw the face of God in 33, and so Joseph's brothers saw the face of God in Genesis 45. They're watching. A new generation is watching. And they're asking, is the gospel real? Is it true? Does it matter? Does it make any difference at all? Or are you adults all play acting? But when the gospel is incarnated winsomely in front of our children, it sets them on a trajectory that shapes their vision of what is true. What's always true is there is a generation watching and taking note What legacy are we leaving in the minds and hearts of our kids in this new generation? And kids in this new generation, there's nothing that gives us more joy than having you around. And there's more than just a few of us who love you and who are praying for you and cheering for your future and want you to go forward in gospel faithfulness. And all of us feel the challenge of such a trajectory. Finally, reconciliation with God is based on his willingness to forgive, not our crafty means to appease him. What Jacob does as he approaches Esau is the approach of a lot of people on this globe. I know. I'll send droves and droves of stuff to God that I'm doing, and in the end, he'll say, I'll tell you what, you're a pretty good old boy. Come on in. That's my strategy. That's what I'm going to do, Eric. We'll send the first drove. And if he asks, what would you do that for? Well, I want you to be impressed with me. 
It's in the second drove. What would you do that for? I want you to be more impressed with me. I want you to know that we will not be reconciled to God on our own terms. We are reconciled to God on his terms. You say, well, Eric, what's his terms? Right here. The blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross for our sins. Or Paul's shorthand, he loved us and gave himself for us. Good Friday changed our destiny with the Lord. Have you received into your life the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you living this morning grateful for what God did in Christ reconciling the world to himself? Or are you a footnote on what A.W. Tozer calls uh, modern folk yawn at the cross? How could we yawn at the cross? God ended the war we started with our sin by becoming man and dying on the cross. He loved us. Gave himself for us. Are you relying? That's one of our four R's. Are you relying upon Jesus Christ as your hope for eternal salvation? Or are you scheming with your self-righteousness or some other means to be accepted? It's very important for you to understand the truth. God will not accept you on those terms. And you'll think about that forever in hell. But God offers the free gift of life in the person of his son, Jesus. To see the face of God is to see one who's willing to forgive you because of his heart and in spite of our sin. Glory to God. Well then, for those of us who've received Christ, are we living lives of gospel gratitude? And do we leave in our wake the very impression that, wow, God lives in that person's life and to be with them is to be with God. Augustus Toplady, a long time ago wrote, or a while ago wrote, Nothing in my hands I bring to God. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. So what a fitting Sunday to end here at the Lord's table. Let's spend time with him in prayer as we come. Will you bow your head with me? Lord, work in our lives in this moment, I would pray. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who, right now, you are opening their heart to believe, and they are recognizing that it's not in their schemes, but in the gospel that they can be forgiven and come to know you as their Savior, and they're recognizing their sin, and they're recognizing their offense. It's real. But they're recognizing the glory of your forgiving heart, and they want to receive Christ into their heart, Lord. I, I pray that you'd help them just right now, as they're seated, where they are, to receive Christ as their Savior. Lord, I pray for fathers and mothers this morning who, however they're treating each other and whatever they're modeling in front of their children is shaping their children's disposition toward life and God and marriage and 
family. Oh, Lord. Thank you that that little boy saw you do some incredible stuff in front of his dad and his estranged brother, and his life was marked. And Israel was preserved through Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers later. Lord, what's it like? Show us what it's like to encounter us in life. Is it, Lord, is it to see the face of God or to see the face of anger and judgment? Rejection. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Lord, we're happy this morning to be at the table with you. The elements are grape juice and crackers. And after this prayer, they're still grape juice and crackers. They're not transformed, Lord, but it's special for us to be with you at the table. You're with us now, reminding us of the door of salvation which was opened on Good Friday, the tomb of hopelessness which was kicked open on Easter morning. Thank you for Jesus Christ our Lord. Hear us as we finally prepare to come to the table.